everyone and welcome to the second Brexit webinar from Hogan Novels of 2020. So I'm Susan Bright, Regional Managing Partner for the UK and Africa here at Hogan Novels and leader of our Brexit Task Force. I'm really pleased to be joined today by various colleagues from across the firm. So first of all, Lourdes Catrain, who co-leads our global international trade and investment team, and Lourdes is based in Brussels. Aileen Dussain, who heads up the UK trade team. Charles Brasted, who heads up our UK public law and policy team. Robert Gardner, Director of Government Affairs here in London. Bob Kyle, who's a partner in our Washington Government Relations and Public Affairs team. And last but certainly not least, Rachel Kent, who is a partner in our London Financial Services team. So, we have this series of three webinars early this year to keep you all informed and help you to prepare your businesses for change, and also to advise you on thinking about engaging with and influencing the UK's future trading, legal and regulatory positions as we quickly move to Brexit Day, expected at the end of this month and beyond. So today's webinar, Engaging with the, Bre with the Exit Process, will shed light on what we can expect from the trade negotiations with insights today from the UK, from the EU, and from the US. And we will begin to identify some key issues for specific sectors. So today, we're going to be looking at financial institutions and the automotive and mobility sectors. And next time, we'll continue this theme looking at some other industry sectors. The third webinar in this particular series is entitled The Clock is Ticking, and that will be on Wednesday, the 5th of February, again at the same time, so that's 3.30 in the UK. And it will aim to help your business work out your priorities and how to continue to work in a climate of continued global uncertainty. You can register um, for the next webinar by the resources section on your screen or sign up through our Brexit Hub. And recordings of all three of the webinars will be available on the Hub, so do please feel free to share these with colleagues engaged in your Brexit planning. I'm just now going to hand over to Robert um, to talk a little bit about um, the agenda for today. Susan, thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. Since our last webinar, it's now even more difficult to see a situation where the UK will not leave the EU on Friday next week. Um, and with that, the focus has very much changed uh, to negotiating future trading relationships, uh, and in particular that of the British government uh, as it begins to forge a unique trade deal with the EU uh, simultaneously to launching its negotiations with other major powers, including, of course, the, the United States. There's much to learn from the EU uh, and the um, US approach to trade negotiations, um, and very little precedent for how the UK might approach negotiating, uh, if, if any at all. Um, so you may have many questions on that, and we have time at the end to, to, to address some of those. Um, wherever we can, we'll answer the questions on the webinar today. Uh, so please do start sending them in uh, and continue to do so throughout the presentation. Um, you can use the question box on your webinar screen at any time. Uh, it's described as Q&A and technical support. The questions come directly to us, and as ever, they are not seen by other participants. Uh, but of course, we may choose to read out your question live on the webinar, but we will guarantee to do so anonymously. <laughs> Susan, thank you. Uh, Robert, thank you. So to kick us off today, I'm first going to turn to my colleagues from our international trade and investment team, so Lourdes and Aileen. Um, so uh, to start off with, so I'm going to turn to Lourdes first in Brussels. So this is going to be the first time in more than 40 years that the UK will embark on a solo trade negotiation. On the other hand, of course, the EU has had many decades of experience of bilateral and multilateral trade negotiations. So, Lourdes, how, how do you see um, Brussels intending to map out the negotiations, and, and when are they going to start? Thank you, Susan, and good afternoon, everybody. As part of the ongoing EU internal preparatory discussions for the negotiations, 
the EU intends to negotiate what is now called a single comprehensive partnership agreement with the possibility of supplementing agreements. And this was yesterday discussed by the European Commission with member states in the context of these preparatory discussions. So the EU procedure to negotiate trade agreements is set out in Article 218 of the EU Treaty. And these negotiations and conclusions, they involve various EU institutions. We have the European Commission, the executive branch of the Union that is responsible for proposing legislation, managing the day-to-day -day business of the EU. And many of you may recall that the European Commission was responsible for the withdrawal agreement negotiations. In the context of trade negotiations, the European Commission will be in charge of running the negotiations on the basis of a mandate from the Council. We also have the Council, so that's the Member States, the legislative branch of the European Union, and they are required to issue the mandate that will set the basis of the EU negotiating position to the European Commission. The Council will follow the trade negotiations and will do so much more closely than it did with the negotiations of the withdrawal agreement. The Council plays and will play in this case a very crucial role in the shaping of the agreement with the United Kingdom. We have also the European Parliament that although they don't have a formal role in the negotiations, they will be informed of the progress on a pretty regular basis by the European Commission and very importantly, the European Parliament will also be required to approve the agreement. Now that we have identified the three main EU institutions, let's sort of see a little bit about the time and what will happen. So when the UK, once the UK leaves the European Union on the 31st of January, it will then become a third country. At that moment, the Council will provide the negotiating directives, which will include the objectives and the scope of the negotiations to the European Commission. This is the so-called negotiating mandate, and I am sure we're going to be hearing a lot about it in the coming weeks. Earlier this week, the European Commission Chief Spokesman, Eric Mamère, stated that the negotiations with the UK would not start before the end of February, or beginning of March even. And that basically, you know, is more or less the expected time for the mandate to be in place. Thank you. So it's really clear that the EU has extensive negotiating experience to fall back on. Um, turning to Aileen, where, where does the UK stand? So and, and thank you, thank you, Suzanne. Well, well, it's worth remembering that UK officials have played a key role in the shaping of the EU trade policy and EU policy as a whole uh, for these you know, more than, than 50 plus years. And, and that's true for um, the UK government's involvement in each of the three institutions that Lourdes just described, at European Commission level, Council of the EU level, and of course at European Parliament level through the number of UK MEPs that were elected uh, at um, European Parliament level in, in Brussels. So there are a number of UK trade experts that um, who we can call upon and are already being called upon to to shape and, and negotiate on behalf of the UK government this next phase of the of the trading relationship with with the EU. It's worth noting as well that we've we've also coming out we are also coming out of three years and a half of preparation. So there has been a lot of work that has been done within the various UK government departments to prepare for this future trading discussions. But the crucial issue will be whether the U what the UK will seek as part of those negotiations. So whether the UK will seek a mixed agreement, uh, i.e. an agreement that includes sectors requiring ratif ratification by all the EU member states, or one that only engages EU exclusive competence, which can be approved by, the, by just the Council of the EU and the European Parliament. And, and the list of exclusive competence matters includes, as I'm, I'm sure we are all familiar with, uh, customs issues, competition rules, and EU trade policy, for instance, but that will not necessarily include 
over mixed competent types uh, legislative issue, for instance, you know, defense and, and this sort of, uh, of foreign affairs more generally. So, and the issue will, 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 will be timing. If the FTA needs to be uh, enforced by the end of 2020, the timing is tight uh, to agree and ratify a mixed agreement by uh, the end of that transition uh, implementation period. So realistically, it could be that we focus on an EU exclusive competence agreement only just because of the timing perspective. This might result in a narrow scope of any agreement, but as Lourdes mentioned, we might envisage some specific sectoral uh, negotiation occurring uh, in parallel. So it's very interesting to see from an EU perspective that in addition, as you've both said, to the European Commission, that we also have the Council, the European Parliament, playing important roles from the EU side. So, um, Lourdes, with, with all of these various um, actors in the negotiations, how, how do you see the EU intending to structure those negotiations? Thank you, Susan. The, the EU structures trade negotiations you know, in a fairly similar manner as that of the most WTO countries in terms of you know, the processes and the principles. So they will be forming what we normally call working groups, and they will cover both substantive as well as procedural subjects that the agreement will eventually cover. And these, I would expect, they will be already largely identified in the negotiating mandate that I referred earlier. So these chapters and therefore these working groups, for instance, will cover trading goods, rules of origin, sanitary and phytosanitary measures, technical barriers to trade, trading services, investment, e-commerce, government procurement, competition policies, subsidies, state-owned enterprises, intellectual property, trade remedies, and, and certainly you know, there would be others. And in terms of the institutional and procedural chapters, this would be very important and a couple of them are likely to be really critical in the negotiations between the EU and the UK. So I would consider that regulatory cooperation, uh, you know, given the fact that regulatory barriers uh, you know, are much more important now than tariff barriers, uh, the framework for regulatory cooperation, uh, technical regulations, and standard and conformance assessment are essential. So when we look or when we sort of try to anticipate how this regulatory cooperation will happen between the EU and the UK, you know, the parties are now start, will start from harmonization and mutual regulatory recognition. But, you know, the UK may want to diverge, or at least these are the voices that we've been hearing from the UK government in recent days. So all of these, you know, it will make the, the negotiations of appropriate language for this regulatory cooperation chapter you know, very uh, challenging. Another area of the institutional chapters uh, of, of great importance is the one of exceptions. So in essence, you know, uh, all the chapters are likely you know, to carve out uh, perhaps you know, some policy areas because, you know, let's say, for instance, you know, national security or so on. This is sort of a fairly standard practice of free trade agreement negotiations. And what is important is that in the areas where there will be no agreement, the relationship will fall back into WTO rules. So again, trying to anticipate the areas which the EU and the UK will sort of revert to exceptions will be very interesting. So, the various teams that will be formed in, in for these negotiating uh, working groups, you know, they will, they will be composed of experts, for instance, on agricultural, on services, on public procurement, and so on. And these groups, uh, you know, they, they are going to make progress at very different pace. So to some extent, one would consider that each group is going to operate as a mini negotiation. It is very possible that one working group, you know, reaches a joint text much faster than others. So there's going to be, you know, a little bit of sort of um, 
inter, you know, inter-negotiation within the negotiation, where clearly the role of the chief negotiator in sort of putting things together after each round, you know, will be very important. Thank you. Yeah, no, that, that makes total sense. So, Aileen, um, have we seen any indication from the UK on their approach? Sure. But what we know, what we know is that the UK will have a traditional trade agreement structure with negotiate, negotiation powers being given to the executive, and with draft uh, agreements being approved by by the Parliament. And of course, uh, uh, the the Parliament is as an overwhelming majority for the, the current sort of executive, so we expect that there will not be so much of an issue with getting Parliament approval on each of these draft agreements. But discussion will have will have to be to be held. We, with respect to the actual um, structure of the negotiation, we expect the Department of International Trade in the UK uh, to be playing a key role uh, in this future trading relationship discussions. But as Lourdes has mentioned, because each of the chapters of, of the comprehensive free trade agreement will, will have to relate to very specialized sectors, um, uh, there will be a need for each specialized UK government department to engage very closely with the Department of International Trade on, on what will be agreed and what will be agreeable for, for the UK on each specific uh, chapter. So think, for instance, for financial services, the Treasury will be heavily involved in what DAT will, will propose, for legal services, the Ministry of Justice, and so on. Uh, one, one other question related to, to the actual structure of what will be on the table. I think it's, it's worth perhaps, perhaps taking a step back at what was in the political declaration, which is in a sense the baseline of, of the negotiations going forward. And we know that the political declaration, the one that was revised at the end of last year, uh, and, and you will remember that there were a number of, of key points that had been renegotiated by, by uh, the new prime minister, well, that political declaration is the baseline for the negotiations. And in this political declaration, which is, you know, of course, quite light, but still uh, does say that the, part, the parties envisage an ambitious, wide-ranging, and balanced economic partnership. This, this partnership will encompass a free trade agreement, but will not necessarily exclusively uh, be made of a free trade agreement. But that free trade agreement needs, needs to build, at least from a, from a goods and sector perspective, on, on a commitment that there will be zero tariffs, fees or charges or quantitative restrictions across all good sectors, including agri-food, with appropriate and modern accompanying rules of origin, and we will touch upon the rules of origin uh, issues at the end of, of the webinar. Thank you. Um, Lourdes, can, can we get a bit more granular? Can you give us some um, um, understanding of how and where the negotiations will be conducted and any more indication about sort of timetable and so on? Sure, thank you. Well, we expect that the negotiations will be conducted in what we call rounds or sessions. And this means that the negotiators will be meeting in person, likely to alternate between Brussels and London. So that would be good business for the Eurostar. And in principle, one would expect that the rounds will last a full week. Prior to each round, the negotiators are likely to exchange proposals of the draft text of the various chapters. And the aim of sort of advancing the draft text is really you know, to have meaningful discussions during the actual round. They will start the negotiations on the basis of what we normally call bracketed text that will set out the difference in the language proposed by the two parties. Once the parties reach a common text, then they will unbracket the text. The chief negotiators will define the timeline of the negotiations of the rounds and will hold meetings at the beginning and at the end of each round in which they will be setting the objectives and take stock of the progress. At the end of each round, the parties will prepare joint minutes setting out what has been agreed. On the European side, what is very crucial is that the European Commission will debrief the EU member states after each round through the so-called Trade Policy Committee that meets on a weekly basis in Brussels. These will be really crucial meetings in which you know, member states will revisit, for instance, you know, some of the red lines, you know, what is fishing quotas, what is chlorinated chicken, whatever, but these are 
pretty, uh, you know, pretty lively and intense uh, meetings at the end of each round, Susan. Thank you, Lourdes. What, and what's the, what's the role of the private sector? So um, will we, will our clients have access, access to, to the text, um, bracketed or unbracketed? How, how does all of that work? You know, it's been very interesting to see the evolution of transparency on EU trade negotiations. And I think it's fair to say that since the whole Canada fiasco, the EU has really changed the way in which they conduct negotiations, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the stakeholders. At present, the EU publishes a considerable amount of information about the negotiations that you know, certainly can be used by operators to anticipate regulatory changes and certainly you know, design and, and what should be you know, their strategy going forward in the negotiations. You know, just to give you a little bit of, of a flavor, um, the EU will release the initial text of the various chapters, and this initial text you know, should provide valuable insight on the expected level of ambition. I would certainly encourage all the stakeholders to review them and try to identify early in the process issues of concern. After each round, so you know, let's say if there's going to be like one round a month or one round every three weeks, you know, the European Commission will publish a report. At first sight, it may not look very detailed, but if you actually read between the lines, it does give you very valuable information on essentially the roadblocks of the negotiations and the overall general progress. And last but not least, you know, the European Commission regularly organizes civil society dialogue meetings between the negotiators for each working group and stakeholders, uh, you know, and stakeholders, you know, such as trade associations or individual companies, you know, can certainly register for these civil society dialogue meetings, and they are extremely, extremely helpful. I think what is very important to bear in mind is that and the EU always negotiates under the principle that nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. So this is the so-called single undertaking principle that derives from WTO practice. So even if a working group, you know, let's say intellectual property, agrees on the common text of the of a chapter and sort of like a client concerned about intellectual property is already happy thinking that everything is done. You know, the, these texts could eventually reopen, reopen until the parties, you know, would conclude the negotiations. On the timing, Susan, and I know this is a question that really everybody's talking or everybody wants to have a little bit of clarity about it. Well, you know, just talking as a lawyer, it is very difficult to imagine that more than 1,000 pages, for instance, if we look at the EU agreement with Canada, you know, could be concluded, I mean, actually not only concluded, by a proof by the 31st of December 2020. In my opinion, it just looks unrealistic. Because even if the negotiators would agree on the 1,000 pages of text, on the European side, the European Commission would need to submit a formal proposal for, for adoption to the Council. Then the Council, you know, will have to adopt a decision for the signature of the agreement. That will then be transmitted to the European Parliament for consent. So, as you can see, you know this this approval process. Even if we're just looking at exclusive EU competences that Aline described earlier, it is a fairly burdensome process, and approximately tends to take between six to twelve months. So, it is time. It will be a challenge, Susan. Yeah. Ent entirely understood. Thank you. Um, turning back again to Aileen, um, do you anticipate that services are going to be covered by any future trading relationship? Well, I mentioned the political declaration earlier, which is and uh, will remain our baseline for the upcoming negotiation. And the political declaration, which was, I mean, had these three principles, main overarching principles that apply with respect to goods, uh, was quite light on services. But, but of course, considering the trade surplus uh, in UK trade services with the EU27, we will expect the services sector to be uh, of significant importance in the UK negotiating position. 
And in line with that specific political declaration, if anyone uh, of you read it, the political declaration states um, that the UK-EU deal should build on recent EU FTAs. The UK government is currently looking at the best practices among all the existing EU FTAs for the services sector to build a negotiating position. So, of course, all the sectors that are represented on this call here uh, in the services uh, area should really look at the current position for the existing EU FTAs, what are the reservations, the commitments that our trading partners will have made on the services sector from a legal services perspective, financial services, accounting, uh, media, telecom, and, and really understand what it is that we as the UK would want with, uh, the, to gain with the EU27. And from an EU27 side, from a Brussels side, of course, the EU27 is currently negotiating the mandate, and the mandate being sort of the EU27 negotiating baseline. So we don't know exactly what will be in that mandate, but we will expect, of course, and we will anticipate that it will be both in the UK and the EU's interest to include services and achieve a high-quality deal. All current FTAs, uh, modern FTAs that uh, our key trading partners have negotiated with one another have comprehensive services chapters included. So we would expect the EU27 and the UK to have that as well, where mutual interest lies. Thank you. And just uh, just finally, if I may, I'm turning our attention away from, from the EU. Can the UK negotiate free trade arrangements with third countries, other third countries, um, during the transition period? So the short answer is yes, during transition or implementation period, I mean, uh, however you want to, to call it, um, but the one that will be starting from next Friday, uh, the UK is able to negotiate a signed international agreement with third countries, including a potential UK-US FTA. We will, we will go more into that later. Provided, of course, that's the big caveat that those agreements do not enter into force or apply uh, until the end of the transition period, so that will be the last day of December 2020, unless authorized by the EU. The difficulty, that's the legal answer, the difficulty from a policy perspective will be, of course, uh, what will be the negotiating position vis-à-vis -vis the US, where the UK will also have potentially a separate negotiating position on a key sector with the EU27, and how the trade-offs will play from a US perspective versus the EU27 perspective, and what the UK will be able to conceal with the US to make uh, more gains with the EU27 and vice versa. So that will be a, a significant and complex exercise, not only for the UK government, but of course for all of us stakeholders involved in those specific discussions. Thank you both very much. Um, I'm sure that's been really helpful for everybody on the webinar today. Do please keep your questions coming through. We're trying to answer some of them as we go. If we don't get to them, um, we will try to come back to you after um, the webinar. Um, but Lourdes and Aileen, thank you very much. I'm now going to turn to Charles, Robert and Bob and take a look at how one engages with the negotiation process. What influence um, can business have? We thought it would be really useful to think about what the norm is in Washington, D.C., and so we're particularly delighted to have Bob Kyle on the line with us today from Washington. So Bob has served in senior positions in both the White House and in Congress, and he now helps businesses to navigate the Washington landscape. So he's going to be um, in conversation with Charles Brasted and with Robert Gardner. So I'm going to now pass the baton on to Charles. Thank you, Susan. Um, just to put this in a little bit of context um, before we get into it. Um, I think one of the things we've already done in, in the last few minutes is a little bit of uh, myth-busting. Um, the idea that the UK has nobody who knows how to negotiate a trade agreement um, is, is facile. We've heard that. Uh, the idea that the UK government hasn't started thinking about um, how it will play those and what it wants to get out of them um, is clearly not borne out by all of our experiences over the last three and a half years. Um, but does that mean it's all straightforward from here? Well, we've heard it's complex. I think there are really two issues for me uh, about how this is going to work for business. Um, one, of course, is a, a, a simple issue to state and a difficult one to solve, which is capacity. 
capacity within the UK government and indeed within the business sector to manage multiple trade negotiations simultaneously on a time scale that is entirely unprecedented. Uh, capacity problems aside, I think what was fascinating from the conversation we've just heard is the detail that Lord Ezzelaline can give about the way in which the EU approaches trade negotiations, the institutional setups, the established processes, and the way it engages with other stakeholders. That's the bit that in the UK we don't have because we haven't needed it. We haven't needed it for at least two generations, which is probably about 100 ministerial generations. Mm. Um, uh, so we just don't know how we're going to approach that. Um, so that's really why we thought, well, who in the world does know how to do this stuff? <laughs> um, and we thought about the US, and then we obviously thought about uh, Bob. And, and I think there are really two two questions that we want to, two strands to think about here. One is how government, the, the negotiators engage with business. The other, and Aline touched on this, is it, it is how the executive engages with with the legislature. And one of the developments we've seen in the UK in the last couple of months is a change to our withdrawal act, well, withdrawal bill as it's to this. Um, the government had offered concessions to the opposition a few months ago to give Parliament a clear direct role in setting and monitoring the mandate for the negotiations. That has now gone. So what is that relationship between our government and our Parliament as these negotiations go through? Um, and, and the second strand is, of course, that business engagement. So I'm um, really keen to get your insights into how that works in a part of the world where you, you know how to do it. We know the US has been doing this for a long time, and, and you've got a very well-established tradition of business engagement directly with trade negotiators to help shape those agreements. Can you just tell us a bit about how that works, what the structures are, what the processes are, what's good and bad about it? Sure. Glad to do it, Charles, and good afternoon, everyone. Um, as Charles just said, you know, the U.S. has been doing this, doing trade uh, agreement negotiations for decades. And so I would say, in broad stroke, we have both a formal form of consultation and an informal form of consultation. The formal one is pretty well established and structured. It was set up in 1974 originally and involves 14 industry trade advisory committees, or ITACs, that formally advise our United States trade representative who does our trade negotiations and government officials. And they have these different groups that represent a lot of different sectors, everything from aerospace to digital economy to steel to services to consumer goods, um, and formally advises them. Uh, Lord has sort of indicated what exists along those lines in the EU space. There may not be as much in the UK space, so the second dimension of this is informal consultation, where there's a very open line in the United States where companies may go in and directly have meetings with USTR to talk about their interests, what they'd like to see in the negotiations, or they go in with trade associations, which sometimes companies like to do to sort of a little bit hide behind maybe, or if there's a commonality of interest in the trade association, it's a little more powerful to have a number of companies come in. But individual companies come in if they need a more tailored message as to what works for them. And the consultation, of course, in our case, is not just with business, but also labor groups go in, environmental groups go in. It's pretty broad. But there's a fairly established thing, but I think in the context of the UK, we'll have to see if they establish more formal structures. But certainly the informal structure can be very effective, both for companies and for trade associations. Thanks, Bob. That, that's really interesting. Um, I guess from a, a UK perspective where uh, the word lobbying is often thought of as a dirty word, um, there's potentially a perception that you know it, it's not right for businesses and trade associations to, to try and direct, uh, direct government policy. Um, what would you say uh, for that sort of audience here about what the, the value and purpose um, of the consultation processes? What's, what's the reason for it? Sure. Well, you know, I had served in the Clinton White House as the President's Special Assistant for International Trade, so I had lots of companies coming in uh, to talk to me about trade agreements that we were negotiating at the time. And I think the most useful thing that came out of it was that 
they would explain to me how their business worked and what we needed to do in the negotiations to protect the interests. You know, UK negotiators should be trying to serve the interests of the UK in these negotiations. And most of them do not come out of your sector. They, they don't know much about your sector. And frankly, you don't want people negotiating who don't know any of the business realities of sectors. So if, if you can go in and explain to them how your business works, what you want to achieve, what's important for the UK business, that can be very useful to a government official who really doesn't have any background in it and can frankly stop them from doing things that are unwise inadvertently because they simply don't know enough about the business. So I didn't see it as as a horrible thing to do. I saw it as actually helping the negotiators um, in the process of this. And I would say that you're likely to be most effective when you do intelligently educate them about your business and what needs to be done in negotiations to help advance UK interests. Thanks, Robert. And, and ju just to understand, maybe this is a naive question, but in the US, do you see businesses, business leaders, their advisors in the room as part of the actual trade negotiations or sitting alongside government negotiators or or are they very much in the back room? They're generally not in the negotiating room itself. At the end of the day, they are frequently outside the room and because there is this pattern of consultation, it's not unusual for the US negotiators to come out and consult with them. But the overarching point that I'd make is you have sort of a choice whether you're going to be proactive or reactive. And as in most things in business and elsewhere, it's almost always better to be reactive and it's almost always better to start very early. So, you know, we were talking about how the, the UK is putting together its proposals, which it will submit to the EU and so forth. Um, it is much better to be in at the takeoff than try to join the whole thing mid-flight or at the landing. If your business goes to the UK negotiators now and says, look, in my business, here are the things that are really important to get. Here are the things you've got to avoid. Here's what was in past agreements that makes sense. Here's what wasn't in past agreements and so forth. Then you do have an opportunity to shape what they are going to propose at the outset. And of course, it's always better to shape what they propose at the outset than asking them to make a mid-course correction. And so you can really direct things. And again, you do it in this way that demonstrates you have knowledge about the industry and you can help them uh, make smart decisions. And so if you start early, you have a much better chance of influencing the final result. I always think if you're standing outside the room at the end of the day hoping to get in and knocking on the door and hoping to get in, you are probably losing. If, on the other hand, months before that, if you have had a conversation very clearly stating what your priorities were and helping to educate them about why that's important for UK interests, then you're going to find that whether you're in the room at the end of the day or, or not doesn't make as much difference because they already know what you think. You've already had this discussion. In your perspective, hopefully you've persuaded them as to what uh, they ought to do, and they're already pursuing what you would want. So starting early, I would say, is really critical and has a much better chance of directing things in a way that makes sense from your perspective and from their perspective hopefully lines up with UK interests. Okay, so get there early, be ready to educate, inform, support um, is I think the message we hear um, loud and clear. Um, so that's what businesses need to do. Um, if you had three top tips on how businesses right now should be preparing to make that engagement as effective as possible to make sure they get that educational piece done, um, what would you be advising, advising businesses to do right now? Well, the first thing is to start early. So we sort of went over that, start early. Two, I would take a look at the past agreements that have been reached. Look at the agreements, for example, that the U.S. has negotiated uh, free trade agreements with other countries to understand where the U.S. might be coming at this. Um, look at agreements that the EU has negotiated. Uh, and again, with an idea of what uh, were provisions that are good that we want to keep, what provisions maybe were troubling, what additional provisions could there be. And lastly, just be real clear about what your priorities are. Think through as a business, 
what are my priorities in this negotiation? What do I want out of it? So that you would be sure that what's being negotiated lines up uh, with what you want. Obviously, clarity of thought and strategy is always really important, and it will serve you well, I think, um, as you try to engage with government officials on this thing. Well, thank, thanks very much for that uh, that quick masterclass in in um, engaging in trade negotiations. That's uh, fantastically helpful insight. Um, if, if I can try and now translate that into the, um, uh, the, the, the world of the UK and, and what we're about to leap into, um, and, and ask Robert a, a couple of quick questions about the practicalities of this, really. Um, we don't have the formalised engagement processes and the experience of doing that, that that Bob was talking about. But I guess we have exactly the same need from, from the business side of things to get those tasks done, the, the, the early education, the, the guidance. Um, having heard what Bob was saying, Robert, what do you think, what are the points you take from that on a practical basis uh, for what businesses here need to do? Well, Charles, thank you. And, and Bob, thank you. Certainly everything you've said from learnings in the US resonates um, from my experience over here. Um, in terms of adding a bit of a, a UK how, I think monitoring is very important. I think um, businesses that recognise the government is in uh, uncharted territory uh, and has set itself this, Charles, you call it an unprecedented timescale. Um, I think where business can be monitoring for risk and opportunity, not just for itself, but actually for government, for the United Kingdom, um, uh, because of the economic consequences of that, uh, business can, can use that as a means of getting uh, into government and, and providing some constructive solutions to that. But by monitoring, it's not just keeping an eye on the news and, and, and what's available in the public domain, it's also by engaging directly and stitching together the various points that businesses are hearing and taking the, the, the culmination of that back to government. Because um, as, we've, as we've said on previous webinars, government is not monolithic and very often can benefit from outside organizations having picked up conversations around government and taken that back to it. Um, it's a cliche to say that government doesn't know what it doesn't know, but I think we've talked about unknown unknowns. And I think, again, where business is able to identify some of the risks, not just for itself and its sector, but for government itself in these talks, that's something that government will be uh, will be very happy to hear. Um, and then, obviously, to present that with some constructive mechanisms for government to address it, uh, drawing on the experience that business will have uh, and, and some of the ways in which government can approach that um, will will be beneficial to all parties. Robert, we've got, as we've already heard today, uh, a strong majority government for the first time in a while, um, meaning and, and one that has already uh, sought to reduce the intended role of parliament in this trade process. Um, does that mean, in your view, that uh, in terms of engagement over the coming months and years, I suppose indeed in terms of the intelligence gathering that you were just talking about being crucial, that all of our efforts need to be focused on on government, or, or is there also something about Parliament or indeed about other stakeholders that need to be part of uh, part of a business strategy? Well, I think it's it's certainly the case that we have a very different parliamentary makeup now than, than when we started our webinar series, but. Um, uh, my sense is very much to focus on on government, to focus on um, politicians, but also the senior officials within government. Um, what I would add, though, is is to be cognizant of the broader domestic agenda of government. As we've said on previous webinars, this is a government that is not only committed to Brexit and the trade deal, but it's also committed to retaining um, the support that it was given at the last election. Um, one of the ways that it will do this is by a fairly progressive domestic agenda, um, and that is something where anyone who can support you know, will, be, will be greeted with open arms, um, which in a sense takes us back to Parliament, because over the course of the next four or five years, I think to start with, we're going to see a much more holistic approach to retaining that support by delivering a strong economic um, ground for jobs and prosperity across the UK. But my sense is towards the end of this parliament, we will start to see um, a move towards more specific support for constituencies 
uh, and that is where um, businesses can also start to engage with some of those backbench, particularly Tory MPs, who will be gearing up in election mode to the next um, to the next general election. Thanks, Robert. And just, just one last question on the how. Um, Bob talked a bit earlier about the role of trade associations in the U.S. Uh, and of course, uh, those are some of the structures, the institutions that we do have and, and know well in the U.K. The business organisations, the trade associations, have played a, a, a big role in, in communication between industry and, and government. Um, do you see do you see that as being the the central channel for engagement with government on the trade policy issues, um, or, or are, there, are there other things, other ways uh, that businesses need to be thinking about? Well, I think trade bodies remain incredibly important, and they are recognised and respected by government, as indeed they are by their members. Um, one of the prices that we pay for weight is dilution, and I think we need to be careful that we are assessing in an unprecedented period with an unprecedented time frame that we're not just relying on a default. Um, some of the trade bodies that we as a firm are associated with have been incredibly nimble uh, and drawn on great uh, contacts and some very bright people to, uh, to support government. But I don't think, I don't think anyone uh, has all the answers in this. And I think in addition to um, drawing on membership and support for trade bodies, I do think organisations need to be engaging directly with government. Um, I think they need to be monitoring and they need to be um, providing constructive solutions directly because there will be small wins uh, for for business and indeed for government, um, which, which shouldn't be ignored. And just on that, Charles, there's a second point. One thing that we as a firm have heard a lot about is that um, some of the smaller organisations um, may not have the resource or the experience or indeed the weight to um, go into government and, and make noise and be heard. Um, I think it's important that they come together uh, as, 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 as closely as they can, um, rely on their membership of trade bodies, but also where they have lawyers, and particularly good lawyers, um, to you know, seek guidance from them in how they can both um, plan uh, an approach to government uh, and supporting government for this, but then also relying on firms and advisors that they already have to provide some of that assistance um, for them. Thank you, um, all three of you. Thank you, Bob, um, in Washington. Thank you, Charles. Thank you, Robert. Um, we're taking a look at one or two questions that have come through to see if we are going to answer those now. But in the meantime, while we're looking at those, can I turn um, for our final section for a little focus at the moment on industry sector perspectives? Um, and I'm going to bring um, Rachel Kent into the conversation um, to help us think about and focus on the financial um, services sector briefly, and then we'll turn to automotive and mobility sector with Aileen. So, Rachel, turning to you first, what do you expect to happen in relation to financial services during um, the UK-EU trade negotiations? Um, I think the first thing I would say, Susan, is that essentially we are still in a little bit of a crystal ball uh, gazing time uh, and just to remind everybody like many other sectors the principal not the only but the principal issue for the financial services sector uh, is the loss of um, frictionless trade in services with the EU um, it, more precisely from a financial services perspective that in, involves the loss of passporting now we've heard that the government is planning to negotiate an FTA with the EU to uh, come into place by December 2020. Uh, the reason I said crystal ball gazing is I think I'm right in saying we still don't know for sure what is going to be in that trade agreement. We, we do hear that the government might be intending to announce the content uh, of that in February. We certainly hope that financial services is going to be included. We hope that there's going to be a specific financial services chapter uh, in the FTA for all the reasons Aline has said. And we should remember that the political declaration provides that the parties will actually start assessing each other's equivalents under our respective third country regimes as soon as possible after the UK's departure. So that in effect means on the 1st of February. It goes on to say that they will endeavour uh, to complete those assessments by the end of June 2020, 
uh, in time, one would assume, for the ratification process, subject to what uh, Lord Earth told us earlier. If that happens, that would give us passporting type rights in relation to everything covered by the third country regimes. Now, it may well be that the provision of the existing regimes is all that will be included in an FTA if indeed uh, there is anything at all. Now, if that is the case, if it is limited to the coverage of the existing third country regimes, that will mean no coverage for deposit taking, for lending, for payments, and for many other subsectors uh, of the financial services industry. So, in those areas, there would be no passporting type rights. But of course, it remains to be seen whether areas not covered by equivalents will be included uh, in the trade agreement, and we certainly don't know for sure that they won't be, uh, and also whether the government will seek the, what you might describe as the process improvements around the equivalents regime. To give you an example of that, there's a lot of concern in the industry that the EU could withdraw equivalents with limited, if indeed, any notice. So I think the industry is keen to see whether that position can be stabilised to be more reliable for industry by giving uh, a longer notice period. But in any event, equivalence decisions are, of course, notoriously political. We've seen a few uh, in the past, and you only have to speak uh, to our colleagues in Switzerland. Uh, and in a, uh, furthermore, they're likely, I suppose, to be tied to the rest of the deal. So if there is no other deal, it is likely uh, to impact on equivalent decisions. So certainly not guaranteed. So to sum up on that point, I think I would say that for things not covered by the equivalent regime, or if the parties fail to reach agreement more broadly, we are still in a position where we might have a hard Brexit at the end of 2020. So certainly, uh, we're not at the point, Susan, of um, telling clients to unwind their contingency planning just yet. Thank you, Rachel. Um, there have been reports in the press um, that the Chancellor here has said there won't be um, UK alignment with EU rules. Um, what, is, what does that mean, and, and what are your thoughts on all of that? Yeah, and I think uh, that was an article uh, in the FT um, earlier in the week, and I think that struck fear into the hearts of many. Um, my own view is that uh, that comment was aimed at a warning to effectively the manufacturing industries, um, automotive, we're going to hear about in a, in a minute, uh, pharmaceuticals and so on. But for financial services, um, the Chancellor actually went on to say that he wants trade with the EU to be on the basis of outcome-based equivalents. Now, it remains to be seen exactly what that uh, is, but that certainly suggests, of course, a degree of alignment. So I think uh, that sort of heading or statement is a bit sensationalist when applied to financial services. But I would make two points. He, um, he indeed gave no undertaking to remain uh, equivalent at all, uh, after day one, so to speak, although I think it's fairly clear that uh, we have seen no current plans to diverge after that. Certainly the government has declined to give us uh, a list of possible areas of divergence. Um, but what it effectively means is that the equivalent test, the Chancellor wants to not be line by line and very technical, but essentially based on a looser test by reference to outcomes. Now, of course, as always, uh, it is not clear that the EU will accept this. Uh, so, again, that's certainly another risk factor. This concept of alignment, will they, won't they, is certainly another risk factor in relationship to the future maintenance of equivalence. Thank you very much indeed. And finally, turning to Aileen in relation to the automotive and mobility sector, there are just so many issues which um, companies in that sector, those sectors will need to, to consider, you know, free movement of people, customs delays, regulatory changes. Um, one area is, of course, um, the particular issue of rules of origin, um, and we obviously think clients need to be thinking very carefully about that. Um, can you just explain what the rules of origin are and why they are so important? 
So, and first of all, I mean, of course, the UK automotive and, and mobility industry relies particularly heavily on unrestricted access to the EU single market. So, it was not surprising to see that it was one of the key sectors, very vocal in the context of the withdrawal agreement discussions, respect to ensuring that there was a, you know, as close as possible free trade relationship with the EU going forward to minimize any potential disruption on their supply chain. It's very integrated within the EU. <coughs> So Brexit, of course, will have particularly far-reaching consequences for that sector with, as Suzanne, to your point, delays, potentially delays between the EU, uh, from, between EU and uh, UK border and additional administrative requirements associated with rules of origin. But before I answer that specific rules of origin point, I just want to make sure that everyone on the call understands that you know, it's not this rules do not start you know, becoming into effect from from next Friday. In the transition period, everything that we know as part of operating under the EU rules, i.e. no customs checks, no specific paper and customs declaration when shipping your goods from the UK to France or Rotterdam, I mean, things don't change. But it's true that we need to start anticipating any potential rules of origin that will be determined in the, in the, in the future uh, FTA with the EU. So put very simply to answer your question precisely, Susan, rules of origin are how customs authorities classify where an import has come from in an international trade context. So it is, in effect, the economic nationality, the economic passport of a good. Thank you. And how, 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 are, the of, uh, of, how, how are the origin of goods actually determined? Sure. Well, in a, in a free trade agreement context, because of course that's where you know our baseline sort of starting point is that we will have a free, a comprehensive free trade agreement with the EU 27, hopefully by the end of 2020. Well, if the EU and the UK agree under a free trade agreement to remove tariffs for each other's goods, this grants a preference, a preferential. Um, the preferential rules of origin for, um, um, well, UK goods into the EU and EU27 goods uh, into the UK under that specific free trade agreement. So UK goods seeking to enter the EU under this preferential origin will have to prove that they are from the UK, they are UK origin goods under the specific rules that will be determined under that specific uh, free trade agreement. So this Having a, a very de having very detailed rules of how you determine the specific UK origin or EU27 origin in that specific FTA context will be extremely important because if you don't have it right, if you don't control it right, you can potentially have uh, over trading, enfin, over um, importers coming into the UK, not necessarily complying with those rules, just to get a preferential access to the EU market. And um, briefly, um, what about more complex manufactured goods like cars? So it's, it's difficult for, the rules of origin is, is very essential for cars, but also complex manufacturing processes, uh, complex engineering, but also apparel or textile sort of uh, sector. So it's not only a, a car specific uh, issue, but for a car, just to give you an example, the car has multiple components. Bumpers, brakes, clutches, computer softwares, leather seats, all these things that actually make a car. So those different components, they can be, they can be made and manufactured in different countries and shipped as they need to be shipped and assembled into the final product, for instance, in the UK. With all these multiple components adding value to one another, it can be sometimes difficult to, to determine where they come from. Are they a UK-specific product, or do they come from a different bundles of different other countries? Those, in effect, are why, are why uh, rules of origin for the car sector is, is somehow perhaps more difficult than in other sectors. Thank you very much indeed. So we're just drawing to a close now. We've got loads of more questions from the audience that we haven't managed to get to during the course of this. I'm going to ask just two very quick ones, and then we'll have to come back on the other questions that we've had uh, this week. Um, so just a couple of quick fire ones. Robert, are we, is the panel aware of any positive recruitment by government from business to negotiating teams, or is it going to be a civil service approach? Well, um, Aline, Bob and I on this call went to see uh, Crawford Faulkner, the UK's Chief Trade Negotiations Advisor, um, fairly recently, and he was telling us that not only uh, is the answer to that yes, uh, they are actively recruiting for uh, experts, um, but that they are also very keen to listen to business. I think the challenge will be once those experts are inside the civil service, whether they can retain their uh, expertise and allow that to prevail, rather than the system uh, mashing it up in that wonderful way that Whitehall sometimes can. 
Thank you. And finally, Charles, do you envisage an extension to the transition period? Well, my best guess, and I hope it's an educated guess, um, is that we won't see an extension to the transition period using the existing mechanism for extending it. What I think we will see is a very high degree of continuity, regulatory continuity, post the end of 2020 via some sort of next step agreement that it falls short of the fully comprehensive trade agreement. Let me tell you very briefly um, why I think that is, and, and I hope in doing so I'm answering one of the other questions about strategic objectives of the UK government. I think you've got to separate um, uh, the trade objectives and the political objectives. There are political expediences about showing that we are not extending, that we are out, we'll see that on the 31st, uh, and the, the meeting some of those political commitments. But the trade objective and the wider strategic objective is, is more long-term and it's different. And actually we heard this from, uh, with a, a client meeting a minister earlier this week, and what he explained was what we want to be out of is the political union. That's what we've got to demonstrate. Do we dislike the regulatory environment? Not really. We invented most of it. Do we want to carry on most of it? Yes. Are we prepared to commit to no divergence? No. Um, but do we have plans by divergence? Not really. Um, and I think that's what will shape where we are in a year's time. That's really helpful. Thank you, Charles. And so that concludes um, today's webinar. Um, as always, if you want to talk to us about how Brexit is going to impact your business in more detail, please get hold of us. You can see our Brexit resources available on the final slide. Um, as ever, it just remains for me to thank my colleagues from right around the world for joining us uh, today and to thank you, our audience, for listening. And we very much hope that you are able to join us uh, next time. Thank you.